the revolutionary internationalist movement, year 2000, the Millennium Statement. The imperialists and their lackeys want us to celebrate the coming of a new millennium. Very well, but whose? A millennium of these parasites or of the people who have created everything. And how should we celebrate? By waiting upon them in their banquet halls as they gorge on the fruits of our labor and dance on floors strewn with skulls of their victims to the screaming accompaniment of war machines even now spewing death and devastation. And should we forget their centuries of inhuman exploitation, wars of conquest, plunder, condemnation of billions to unimaginable misery, genocide, Auschwitzes, and Hiroshimas? Should we stand in awe as they wish we would, gaping at their gadgets, numbed by their shill propaganda of promises for the meek? History for all oppressors starts with their own reign of oppression. Thus, they vainly try to mortalize their fleeting existence by freezing time and stamping it with their arbitrary wills. But the march of humanity is relentless. History shows us how both crowns and calendars were unceremoniously swept aside by the necessary agenda of class struggle. Inevitably imposing itself through twists and turns, this is how it was and this is how it will be, until exploitation are eliminated once and for all. So what does this calendar show? Heroic sagas, not of emperors or saints, but of the wretched of the earth. Rebellions and revolts, now here, now there, crushed and crucified, but nevertheless bursting out relentlessly. Ripping apart the lies of religious pacifiers, shattering the peace of rulers. For centuries, the oppressed had dreamed and hoped for an end to their misery and suffering. In the midst of their abject existence and drudgery, they cherish memories of long-gone societies free of exploitation. Lively expressions of art and music pulsed with their dreams of a new dawn. They rose up against oppression, fought the masters, and sought a new life. Let us not forget, it was this struggle, this ceaseless striving for an end to brutal exploitation and inhuman existence that propelled humanity's advance. But the fruits of their struggle were never theirs. Appropriated by new exploiters, the very winds of freedom became new chains of thraldom. Yeah, 
La Salam. Welcome to Politics in Command, a podcast focused around anti-revisionist politics. The Red Guards, later known as the CRCPUSA, or the Committee to Reconstitute the Communist Party of the United States of America, exploded onto the scene in 2016 and 2017. As President Trump was elected, and since the 2008 recession and the boring revisionist organizations that sprouted up in response, the Red Guards burst onto the national spotlight with a high-level energy of militant anti-revisionist goals. Organizers who were sick and tired of the old dinosaur communist organizations, who mainly held dead-end politics, became excited about the Red Guards USA. Hope was reinvigorated, but only for a short period of time. The Red Guards quickly transformed into something else, not just in name, but in ideology, in politics. The transformation showed their true colors. It eventually drove itself underground, not because of state repression, but a conscious choice. It changed the organization's name to CRCPUSA. Slowly but surely, members began to exit the organization, sick and tired of the harm caused by its leaders, sick and tired of the reactionary politics. Eventually, the organization dissolved in early 2022. Since then, members have described their experience on random social media posts individually, leaving most of us unsure of the specifics of a holistic summation with the goal of learning from these mistakes. Today, we have a former member to help guide us through this history. We discuss the origins of the organization, we touch on the recent history of Maoism in the US, we dive deep into the ideology of the Red Guards, we discuss the pros and cons of this history, and finally we ask if the Red Guards, or CRCPUSA, was ever Maoist. This is only the beginning of many summations to come, but we hope it sparks former members to analyze this history and provide a public summation to the movement so we can learn. If anyone has any principled criticisms or general feedback, please visit our website, politicsincommand.info. Also, for folks who do not know, we do have a website with resources to learn more about anti-revisionist politics. I'm excited to present this discussion to everyone today. Hope you enjoy and learn from it. Appreciate you having me on today. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to share the experience that I had with the RGCR, but more importantly, I want to highlight the fact that Gonzaloism is fundamentally revisionism and not MLM. All right. We're going to have a discussion talking a lot about this history, its ideology, describing certain events, but can we just briefly, just for the audience to really get a sense of like where we're coming from, where you're coming from in your views of which it's not just your views. This is kind of almost a commonly held view. Uh, describe the organization in a very brief description. If you only had a few sentences to describe them, just so the audience knows what we're about to get into. 
the Red Guards RGCR was this attempt at bringing anti-revisionist politics in the hellish landscape that was the U.S., but ultimately reverted into the most petty bourgeois aspects of Maoism that turned its focus uh, away from the actual enemy to any group that disagreed and focused so much on clout chasing and developing this sort of lumpen uh like gangster mentality about how maoism was supposed to be applied to the conditions in the united states yes so if you're listening to this we will basically uh describe everything that he just said and 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 it sounds like basically a, a petty bourgeois mixed with lumpen perspectives um that in the beginning i think a lot of people were hopeful and excited about but then kind of devolved into something that just turned people away, harmed a lot of people within and outside of the organization and so much more. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that. So let's start talking about that. Let's start specifically with the ideology of the, of the RGCR organization. Can you describe that for us a little bit? So let me begin by quoting from Lenin's what is to be done with the caveat that this piece was written for a very specific historical context in which Marxism was much more expansive and far-reaching than it is today in the U.S. There are lessons to be learned in how Lenin brings forward his ideas. And in the first chapter, according to Engels, the lowering of the theoretical sharpness is a major hindrance to the movement. In many ways, the RG shouted high and mighty phrases while doing everything they could to lower the theoretical prestige by which Marxism should be judged. So, quote, those who have the slightest acquaintance with the actual state of our movement cannot but see that the widespread of Marxism was accompanied by a certain theoretical, certain lowering of the theoretical level. Quite a number of people with very little and even a total lack of theoretical training joined the movement because of its practical significance and its practical success, end quote. So nominally, the the RGCR would have considered themselves Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, principally Maoism. But, you know, as Maoists, we know that in order to determine an ideology, you have to look at the practice and the practical movements of an organization. So one of the key tenets of Maoism has always been, you know, the struggle against revisionism. But what the CR was so good at was doing this thing of turning revisionism uh, externally. So what uh, internally, there's no such thing as revisionism that exists within the group because they spouted that we're, you know, students of Marx, Lenin, Mao, Gonzalo, you know, and, you know, that means that we're never going to be, you know, subject to revisionism from within. Instead, all the revisionists are coming to attack us on the outside. And so uh, the reason I even put this idea forward is because a lot of this comes from the Communist Party of Peru. But I want to make this absolutely clear that I I generally believe that the, the Communist Party of Peru, known as the PCP, were much better than 
the Red Guards. And they were much better in the way that they actually, at a time when there was a desperate need for armed struggle in Peru, you know, they launched it. They were a heroic, um, you know, group of revolutionaries that, you know, in a dark period of the international communist movement, really did attempt to take on the banner of Maoism when there wasn't many other groups who hadn't capitulated already. So we had seen the loss in China in 76. You know, we had seen the loss of the Soviet Union in 56. And these revisionist coups, um, which we do call them coups, like a Ma- Maoists have to be absolutely clear on that, because it wasn't that you know, Maoism just like was lost uh, or just like given up freely, you know, the the capitalist rotors within the uh, the Communist Party of China defeated Maoism and defeated the left. And the PCP did one thing very correctly is that they said, no, we're fighting against revisionism that exists in the Soviet Union, in Cuba, in Albania, in China. We're fighting against all of these forms of revisionism and we're taking a new path to conquer state power. Very correct. And the the Red Guards today distorted that message by taking so many of their lessons, which had some positive, many negative, and trying to dogmatically apply them to the conditions here in the U.S. And one of the most common examples of that was this idea that somehow, some way, that protracted people's war is a universal ideology without really digging into the the absolute clarity that Mao writes about protracted people's war and just saying, oh yeah, PPW applicable every single aspect of the world, when in reality, the truth is, is that the PPW is applicable in countries where there is a, a peasantry, a semi-feudal mode of production, and typically there's some form of imperialist domination. We can get into all of that a little bit later, but these are just some examples of how the Red Guards, what they did were, they were so good at copy and pasting things from the PCP. And the truth is, is that the PCP themselves, their best traits were that they were heroic and willing to take on, you know, the need for Maoism today. But in in the aspect of in the process of trying to apply Maoism, they distorted Maoism in every way, shape and form as well. That makes sense. Uh, And if that's a little bit confusing, we can get more into that a little bit later. No, I think that's uh, I think our audience will definitely understand that. And it makes sense. You know, I I do want to kind of emphasize the way that the Red Guards used anti-revisionist politics. And essentially what they did was just attack everyone else who didn't have their correct line. And it doesn't matter what your political line is. If you have that view that your political line is absolutely correct and then you use it to attack everyone else and you have no form of unity, it's already a cringe political line that's not going to win anyone over. And the problem with the specifically Red Guards and CR is, uh, you know, the unorganized masses, the apolitical, apathetic masses 
you know, and I'm including people who are organized in some reformist spaces. Um, when they see revolutionary politics and and maybe red flags and hammers and sickles, they right now they only see the most sensationalized versions of that, which is something like the Red Guards going out and being like, this is communism. And if you don't agree with us, we're going to kill you like that type of message. Right. So what's that do? That scares people away from a, the really the only political line that can fundamentally change the society for the betterment of the majority of people. Right. That's the, the ultimate goal. So how are we uniting with people and uh, to really have this uh, convoluted anti, you know, this convoluted political line that posed itself as anti-revisionist politics, that posed itself as Maoism, uh, really confuses the heck out of people. And it's damaged a lot of people. Yeah, you know, just to, I think that's very well said. Um, I think on top of, you know, seeing the sensationalized form of, you know, Ma you know what was quote unquote Maoism, um, there's also the truth that today, in the United States, you know, we have to come with come to the grips with that, though we're not living in the Cold War anymore, and there's not as much like anti-communist like hype uh, that's being per, uh, perpetuated truthfully by, you know, the ruling class. It still does exist. Don't get me wrong. You know, you hear about like the wars against cultural Marxism and all of that, blah, blah, blah. But today... Ultimately, the masses are being fed these ideas of postmodernism, these like uh, po uh, identity politics, these, you know, like representation is enough. And that's all you really need. You know, like we see an emphasis on how going back to the 2020, like George Floyd protests, there's so many people who came out and joined and were a part of that. But there really wasn't a violent reaction or a violent repression of that movement there was in some instances of course there were people that were jailed and killed but the amount of people that rose up against police brutality in that instance was mind-boggling but the reaction was kind of uh like the repressiveness was kind of small you know even compared to the early parts of the black lives matter movement if you go back to some of the early protests with trayvon or eric garner or alton sterling um those were handled much more aggressively because the state has learned. And this is something that people who spout on and on about PPW don't get is that the state knows and the, uh, that today they don't need to violently stomp out communists. All they have to do is ideologically shift the conversation back to individual identities, this identity opportunism, like this idea that subjective truth is objective. And this idea that like, you know, we have so many differences, so we should just stay in our own little neat pockets. And if we're not good at, like you just said, Jay, about uniting people where they actually are so that we can advance to a higher level and bring as many people along in the project of making revolution in this country, we're absolutely doomed for failure. And there's a reason why petty bourgeois groups like the Red Guards, like the Communist Parties or the, the Revolutionary Communist Party in Canada 
has collapsed or the communist, the revolutionary communist party in the U S who have become this like Bob Avakian, you know, think tank or whatever. Uh, I don't want to say cult only because, you know, it can be used in an anti-communist way. And I, you know, we say cults in a very different way, but there's a reason why these petty bourgeois groups who have lost sight of proletarian politics are, are dead in the waters. You know, they're not able to survive. They're not able to swim amongst the masses like, you know, um, like fish in the sea or whatever, um, to use a phrase. And they're collapsing more and more readily because we have a very specific set of contradictions that we have to deal with in the United States. And until we come to grips with that, we're doomed to fail. And we have to really learn from the past mistakes in order to move to the future. A lot to unpack there, but I'd like to kind of focus on continuing the conversation um, and, and just briefly maybe respond to what you said is like there is like we need to unite as many people as possible. But there's also we have to push out a correct political line. I think the issue going back to the original thing we were talking about is forcing that political line versus winning people over to that political line are two fundamentally different things uh, to do, different paths to take. And uh, the the, R, the Red Guard CR, I don't know, I need to just say CR from moving, moving forward. CR, we're going to say that, really was about forcing people into that political line. Um, and to, talk, to go back to all this, let's talk about the history of, of the organization from the Red Guards to the CR, everything in between, maybe something before, maybe something after. But um, could you give like a brief like timeline of events? I'm pretty sure you're uh, you know more about the timeline of events than I do. So uh, could you really just kind of describe the history of the organization to our listeners? Yeah. And, you know, just to be clear, it's not going to be exhaustive and there's a lot more that could be said and there's more documents out there. But I, I'll try my best to cover this in, in a brief and succinct way. So basically, the Maoism in the United States really started with the, you know, we could talk about the new communist movement, but we're going to focus in on the early 2010s. Um, and, you know, there was a resurgence of Maoism because there's groups like the RCP who had, you know, diverted into the Baba Vakid new synthesis path, the Kasama project, which had its positives, but they ultimately kind of fell into like this disorganized chaos. But, there was this group called the the new communist uh, new communist party liaison committee, the new party communist party organizing committee, and those aren't so important. But they kind of brought back in 2015 this ideas of like, well, you know, we're a lot of us are really tired of the social democratic, you know, groups like the DSA, we're really tired of groups like the ISO controlling, which is the International Socialist Organization, which has collapsed now on campuses, the PSLs and the workers world, all of these groups are not really revolutionary. So Maoism became a popular thing. And so from the NCP LC, there was, you know, some groups that formed in New York, in Boston, uh, you have 
groups like Mass Proletariat, and then you have groups uh, out in Kansas City and and uh, L.A. And so that was the early days of Maoism. But through that, uh, there were groups called the Red Guards that came about that had some nominal unity with these groups uh, in the NCP LC. But eventually, you know, the Austin Red Guards, you know, better known as Red Guards Austin, eventually kind of take took over leadership of what became known as the principally Maoist movement. And so around 2016, uh, you saw these uh, like dozens of little collectives pop up. But the main ones were in Austin, L.A., Charlotte, Tampa, Houston, Portland, Kansas City, St. Louis and Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh was the main one. Uh, and this was a little bit separate than what would happen in like the Northeast with uh, groups like Mass Proletariat, uh, Maoist Communist Group and and stuff like that. So, you know, there there's a lot of positives to be talked about with those groups up there. But there overall, these other groups that I just mentioned in those cities kind of became what we now call the CR. So we could go very in depth with each individual timeline, but around 2017, after Trump's election, Trump's election was actually something that really was a boon to the development of these Red Guards collectives. Wait, what did you call it? Trump's selection? <laughs> the Trump selection, yeah. <laughs> you mean winning the presidency, basically? Yeah. Or is there a special yeah. meaning behind that? No, no, no. Just Trump being elected. Okay. Yeah. All right. Trump selection it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Trump being elected to the presidency really brought forward a lot of people who uh, wanted to struggle against that and, and struggle against his presidency because, you know, unfortunately, in the United States, we have this idea that the Democrats are a little bit better. So, like, when there's a Democrat in office, we don't fight as much, you know, against the ruling class. Um, and so when Trump got elected, you know, this led to some of these groups popping up. So from about 2016 until 2019, the Red Guards, as we know it, uh, were a public group. You can find all their Facebook pages. They formed groups called the Serve the People organizations that were active in L.A., Austin, Charlotte, Kansas City. Um, but around 2019, right before the, the shutdowns and the pandemic uh, really kicked off, this was that was the public facing group. But then after that, everyone went, quote unquote, underground to form the the this reconstitution effort called the Committee to Reconstitute the Communist Party of the USA. The CR. Can you break, can you break that down? What that means? CRCPUSA? Um, yes, there's you know, there uh, it meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But the main crux of what it was all about was that there was this idea that at one point in the United States, the Communist Party of the USA in the, the 1920s and 30s was a vanguard party. It was a party that was recognized and seen through its strategy and tactics and in the process of struggle that the masses believed that this was their party. 
Um, and we were trying to recon and the, the communist party of the USA exists today, but it's nothing but a, a, you know, it's like a Democrat, like whatever, it's a revisionist party. And it went on a revisionist path down in the fifties today, according to these advocates of reconstitution that we need to bring back the correct aspects of the communist party. So this was a committee a smaller committee to reconstitute um, the Communist Party on a firmly Maoist basis in their eyes. Yeah, so Red Guards roughly 2016-2019, then it transforms into the CRCPUSA. It also goes underground. Mm. Um, what is the re- Did the state push it underground? What was the reason for this? No, no. So the state did not push anyone underground. It was though there were a lot of really like dumb things and like incorrect uh, practices. Really, it was just a decision by the the top leadership in Austin that we need to stop being so public. And we're and when when they said underground, it just meant not having a Facebook page and a website. You know, like it wasn't actually underground. So from the period of late 2019 until its collapse in around early 2022, uh, there wasn't any real public documentation other than, you know, they would sign some Mayday statements from what now is known as the International Communist League. But it used to be the unified Maoist International Conference, um, UMIC, led by the the Communist Party of Brazil, Red Fraction. I don't think they actually go by Red Fraction anymore. But um, so this is what it meant by going underground. And during this time, there was uh, many still public facing organizations that were affiliated with this uh, CR section. You know, you would uh, hear about still to this day, serve the people, mainly only in L.A. Uh, the defend defend our hoods and defend Boyle Heights had uh, been the housing or anti gentrification organizations, but they were collapsed into this group called United Neighborhood Defense Movement. This is a trend you'll see that uh, this section really likes long names, uh, but that's UNDM. Uh, There was also the Tribune of the People or Tribune of the People, which was uh, a newspaper. It had print for a little while, but mainly it was an online news journal. And then there were struggle sessions. That was uh, the theoretical journal. Uh, and so these were the, the front facing things. There were a few others, like there was an attempt to form like an unemployed councils, uh, which would be like a total copy and paste method from the 1920s and like the great depression era where the CPUSA, you know, did a really, really good job of uniting unemployed workers and, uh, you know, employed workers um, in these unemployed councils under the slogan of, you know, don't starve, fight, you know, and it was a really good slogan at the time. But today there is a attempt to recreate this very dogmatically. You know, uh, if anybody did any organizing during the early parts of the pandemic, one thing we did see was that a lot of people were happy to be out of work. You know, you got those checks, the the $600 checks that you were getting per week from the government um, was a very clear 
attempt to stave off like rebellion uh, at the time. And it worked in a lot of ways, especially after the George Floyd demonstrations. So those unemployed councils didn't really get off the ground. And in that period for about two and a half years after that, uh, there wasn't much progress in terms of like actually getting a mass base. There was some successes and some weren't. But by 2022, it was fair to say that all these organizations that were started by the the CR were nothing but paper organizations filled with activists who, for the most part, nominally held malice politics. Let me ask, because it sounds like they they were doing a lot of different things. Some uh, are more common, others not so common, but still... Like tenant, it seems like tenant organizing, uh, theoretical journals, news outlets, so on and so forth. Why why did some of these things start to fizzle out? And actually, before that, could you could I ask when you think like a peak moment in membership in the highest amount of membership actions events might be? Good question. Yeah. So first um, peak membership, I would say like uh, June, July of 2020, you know, like around the time of the George Floyd protest. So there was a mass influx of, you know, people joining uh, various fronts to fight police brutality. Um, you know, just from my experience, I could talk about how, um, you know, there we had comrades at the time who were willing to go out and protest every single night. And they were recruiting new people to join the the struggle, you know, um, within like either serve the people uh, or like within the United Neighbor Defense Movement. And some of those people ended up actually joining the CR. So I would say June to July and everything after the movement died off and like the, the organic spontaneous protest had died off the that's when everything started to go down um, in terms of like quantitative membership, membership and everything. So I think the, to get into the first part of the question, uh, why did some of these things fizzle out? It's a good question. And I think the main reason and, you know, this could be up for debate. I think one of the main reasons is, is that a lot of these organizations were activist fronts and they were feeder organizations, as you know, we we may call them, that all they did was recruit people who generally had the same ideas the same, uh, you know, politics. And like, there was a high level of, you had to be a Maoist, at least in their eyes, in order to join these various organizations. If people had variety of views, especially within groups like, you know, United Neighborhood Defense Movement, UNDM, you know, uh, there would be there would be just like a lot of like confusion at the top or like a lot of anger if it's like, well, this person has alien class views. But UNDM was supposed to be a non-revolutionary organization. So it's supposed to be attempting to unite anyone who is fighting against bad housing situations, you know, displacement, evictions, any of that kind of stuff. And it should be open to anyone who wants to join. 
But that's not how it worked out in practice. And the reason why was that ultimately the politics of the CR were, you know, totally revisionist. In some ways, you could see like going back and reading some of what uh, what Lenin talked about in the third chapter of what is to be done was bowing to spontaneity. You know, it was this economism that there was only good amount of uh, influx of membership when the mass movement had organically kicked off. But then as soon as the mass movement died off, there was the there was all these purges that happened within the organization because people weren't up to the standards. People didn't have military level discipline. People didn't have which the line was, and this is uh, I, this is sort of anecdotal, but it's kind of funny to say, but like some of the lines from the leadership, what they would say is that the proletariat is a scientific class character or like a class uh, criteria in that has military level disciplines. And so in order for our organization to be able to function like the proletariat does, we too have to have military like discipline because today the working class is not going to take anyone seriously if we aren't organized like the military. Is that Which, tied to the Gonzalo's view to militarize the party and essentially militarize everything? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, there's there's a tiny bit of truth that we should be like, you know, disciplined and, you know, we shouldn't be like this ragtag group of just random people who are doing things that we like and we should have high levels of discipline. But I think it's, you know, maybe this is a question that uh, I could ask you. Are the proletariat organized on a military basis today? Hell no. (laughs) And there are non-militarized forms of discipline that are definitely required. Like it, I don't know why discipline, self-discipline has to be so associated with the military. The military has a function, whether it's under a capitalist state or a socialist state. And regardless, it has to have its own form of discipline because of the way that they operate, the missions that they conduct, their their structure. Uh, the working class is not structured that way and doesn't operate that way. But that doesn't mean there's a type of discipline uh, that can fit into both categories that kind of operate differently um, within the military or within civilian society. But um, it's always been wild to me to hear hear that that the party need, well one it, it's. They would just say militarize the party or have a militarized party. But I'd I'd be like, what does that actually mean? I think I have an idea of what that means, but they never really like there's not too much of explaining of what that is compared. And also, if they do explain it, they don't just explain what just regular old self-discipline is or organizational discipline is outside of the military context. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And that's. It's one of those things that leads to the fizzling out of the mass movement, because the truth is, is that like mass, like you look at the United Front, the NDFP in in the Philippines or like the the like the United Front in India or even like in the in China and in the Soviet Union uh, pre obviously Bolshevik uh, conquering of the Bolsheviks conquering state power. There was independent mass organizations because they have to have their own form of democracy. Uh, 
their own organizational structure. And there are uh, like communists in order to do our jobs well, what we have to do is join the organizations and be a part of it, be a part of the active political life and attempt to win leadership. Like you were saying earlier, we can't force our way into leadership and what the red guards were so good at was uh you know this formalism that exists so much in uh you know american society that they said like as long as we have malice in leadership and people who call themselves malice in leadership then therefore these organizations are revolutionary organizations and that's not true a revolutionary organization one is not the only form of mass organization there should be. There's going to be a need to have non-revolutionary organizations, but that exist to organize the masses' struggles as they exist today. And they don't understand that. Imagine going into like a proletarian workplace, like, you know, let's say a petrochemical refinery plant down in Houston. And if your goal is to recruit only revolutionary workers who exist today who's going to be there is that the problem that we have in today uh like in today's society is that the main contradiction that we don't have enough revolutionaries amongst the masses to an extent but no the problem is is that we live in a society and we live in the united states where there's a low level of class struggle and we have to in some cases show uh, like the working class that actually the best way to resolve some of your day-to-day economic issues is to collectively get together and fight back. And, you know, that's, you know, that's one part of the process and to jump from, okay, we're struggling for economic demands to like, you have to be a revolutionary in order to join is going to alienate the vast majority of people who are thinking about and who may agree with the need to organize their workplace. So this is, this is a fundamental error that they made over and over again. And this is a fundamental error that you see all the time um, amongst like groups that are still around today um, that, you know, have some like pension or some leanings towards the PCP model of Maoism which, you know, we could do a whole other episode about how Gonzaloism is not Maoism. But, you know, uh, groups today, really, if they get something out of this, is that Lenin and the Bolsheviks were very, very clear on this point. You don't create organizational forms until there's an absolute need for it. You have to organize the struggle as it exists right now and the organizational form will become a necessity when it's time and the masses will be demanding an organization as it is you know and this is what communist leadership looks like within the mass struggle because we can go within the mass struggle which unfortunately in the u.s there's a low level of you know, we can go into the mass struggle and we can argue and we can struggle and we can lead in in genuine ways where we win over the hearts and minds of the people themselves to be like, well, actually, we like, you know, why don't we form an organization that's capable of uniting as many people as possible so that we can fight our enemies, the landlords, 
the bosses, you know, the the campus administration, the military recruiters, all these people that we do need to recruit from and like build from and build within like communists have a good history of organizing the struggle as it exists. And the way to not do it is to follow the red guards model of forcing people to be revolutionaries. Related to this point, can you walk me through the process of recruitment just briefly? Because the way that I see it, you know, George Floyd protests are happening, you know, masses are going out in the streets, and then you have these uh, CR members going out, like you said, sometimes every night protesting, but they required people to be malice automatically. So what do they do? Do they like go out, meet these people, and within a day or two start handing them pieces written by Gonzalo and maybe even Mao? And then be like, hey, get with it, or else I'm not gonna talk to you anymore. Like what what is that process like? It's a good question. I uh I'm, you know, to I guess a little bit of their credit, you know, it wasn't that dogmatic but it was kind of similar. So basically people would go out into the protests and the whole goal of going out amongst the people and, you know, protesting was to take leadership of the protest, whatever that meant, you know, um, and really usually what that looked like for leadership is, you know, if you go back and look at some of the, the uh, as an aside, like look at the the French, um, you know, the, the Communist Party, Maoist, I forget, it's PC, little M, F, uh, they're, I don't know what they go by anymore. They don't really have like a website, but one of the ways that we followed them at the time really closely was if you can get a good picture of a flag with a hammer and sickle, that's leading the protest. If you can get a banner up front that has our slogans on it, that's leading the protest. And the people who took that up were the advanced. And therefore, we have to bring them in and we have to like immediately show them that it's right to rebel. And and therefore, like, you know, you start reading, you know, it could be stuff from Tribune or it could be stuff from Mao directly. You know, this is this is one of the problems that the RCP actually dealt with as well. But that happened with the records is that there was this, um, you know, instead of developing like critical thinkers, because communists, you, we have to be like we follow democratic centralism and, you know, we follow an organization that has like a high level of centralized leadership. But ultimately, every communist should be developed to be a thinker, not a lackey. You don't just follow people around. But with the Red Guards, what they did was like they wanted people who immediately from the beginning agreed with the politics that were coming out of Tribune and struggle sessions. So you read some of that stuff. And if they agree with it, then you bring them in a little bit closer. And they had this form of bureaucracy where it was like the people who agreed the most were the ones that were let into the boys club, you know, that were let in a little bit closer and closer. And eventually, if you really followed the leadership, you were able to get you were able to know about the CR. There was a lot of people who never even learned about the CR because 
you know, that was the thing. It's like they treated the masses as enemies. They treated the masses as people who were always potential snitches. And they never treated the masses as people who were the motive force in history, who were the ones that were. Yep. Can I add just real Because I feel like let's do the the malice thing to talk about the backwards, the intermediate and the advanced in that framework. And it seems like the CR and red guards, whatever, are just going in and only finding the advance, which we should know the intermediate is always usually the biggest section of people. And it's the advance and the backwards people that are in the minorities. But in this framework, if you could continue talking about this, are they just going in finding the advance and then everyone else is the enemy? And that's very simply like a simplified version of what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, just to add to that, the advanced were created in the minds of leadership, you know, based on like these subjective idealist conceptions of what it meant to be advanced. You know, Mao is, you know, he doesn't give like this is the the like the genius in many ways of Marx, Lenin and Mao is that they were so good at an understanding the objective situation. All Mao says is that, you know, the advance constitute a very active section of the masses and the active and advance can be sort of interchanged and. That can mean a lot of things. But for the records, there was this very small category of people who were advanced. They were people who are willing to take, quote unquote, action. You know, the people it's the same way the anarchists would think about it. Right. You know, like who are the ones at the front that are willing to fight the police? Who are the ones that are willing to do, you know, throw the bricks? Who are the ones that were willing to throw the rocks and blah, blah, blah. And all of that kind of stuff is all that really meant to them. And in many ways, sometimes the most advanced sections are the ones uh, amongst the masses who are attempting to organize the protest to like bring people together. Some of the people uh, amongst the masses themselves who were just trying to like, you know, uh, bring people together to hear like speeches about why we should fight for unity. And there's no concrete, like one size fits all formula for what the advanced are. And our job when we go to protests really should be to one, if they're like organic protests, we need to be able to talk to people about correct politics. We don't need to co-opt protests. If the protest leaders or the people who call for the protests, you know, need like some support, then we should be there to support that if there is like a genuine like organization or non-organization behind it. Our job isn't to co-opt everything, you know? This is like such a bad thing that communists try to do, quote unquote communists try to do. You know, look at what the RCP did in Ferguson in 2014. They got kicked out and yelled at because they wanted everybody to march behind their banner to say what they're saying that, you know, you had to be saying revolution, nothing less, or that, you know, Bob Avakian is the greatest leader that we've had and whatever. And like, even if they had correct politics, the masses aren't, you know, just these like claymation models that we can form in the image that we think of in our minds. The masses exist as they are. And it's our job to do the long protracted struggle of 
winning over the hearts and minds of uh, of the people by being the the staunchest most principled the largest having the largeness of mind and being willing to like never fear struggle and you know having these debates and struggles over and over again and eventually you know people will see that these the communists are who we you know should be linking up with but if we force that issue it's not possible and so we unite with the advanced to win over the intermediate to isolate the backwards and that's always been the maoist formulation of the mass line and the red guards never really cared for that because at the end of the day there's there's a deep seated hatred of the people yeah, uh, this has been great. Um, appreciate the the descriptions of everything that we've talked about so far, and I hope the listeners are getting something out of this too. But I'd like to, for the sake of time, I'd like to move on to the next section where we can kind of just talk about the pros and cons. You know, uh, if we are dialectical materialists, Marxists, Maoists, communists, then uh, not everything is one sided. Um, there are good things uh, from the experience of the Red Guard CR. Uh, there are negative things, right? So whether you want to start with the negative or the positive uh, aspects of this history, um, could you start to dive into some of that now? Just for the sake of brevity, there's, there's a lot more to be said uh, in terms of positives and negatives. But I want to uh, for let's focus on the positive first, just because, you know, I think a lot of people who are going to be listening to the podcast kind of do know a lot of the negatives, but we'll still talk about that in a second. Um, one of the positives that I think, you know, um, you know, you've done such a great job of uh, with politics and command is that they uh, did focus on, you know, putting out online propaganda, whether, you know, we don't live in 1902 Russia, you know, like today, like we, there's a need to attempt to bring Maoism and use the platforms that are available to us and try to reach as far as possible. They made a lot of mistakes in that process, but like the willingness to, you know, um, have quality, you know, like, propagandists who can make good videos and podcasts and write good articles and like put out decent theoretical like you know pieces and that was the problem is that they had a totally revisionist politics so all of that was hampered by that but there was like a good debate and good struggle within the organization about how to do that better so that we can reach more people on a more regular basis. So that was definitely a positive. And I think uh, more, uh, you know, Maoists and communists today have to take that seriously because we have to contend with a group like the PSL, who, of course, we know are opportunists and revisionists, but they do a damn good job of propagandizing their shitty politics and i'm sick of seeing it yes yes they're a good job at having like the media side of things structured but yeah they're just pumping out this really shitty politics that's that's correct i do want to respond before moving forward on this media aspect because i've had a lot of 
And for a long time, a lot of discussions about the purpose of media. Now, what you're saying is the importance of an organization to have its own media outlet and outlets fundamentally different than one person starting a YouTube channel and push, pushing out politics. Right. And this is the problem that we see all the time. I think it's happening way too much as one person has ideas. They're not in an organization. They don't they're not even trying to learn how to organize, but they're reading all this theory and they've have a they themselves has probably had a qualitative leap in their political development internally. But then, you know, probably can't share it in ways and it's hard to find people to connect with. So they kind of revert to just starting this media outlet by themselves. And then they just create their own silos and their own pockets and their own bubbles. That is fundamentally different than an organization that is on the ground connected to a community or a movement or the masses in some way, shape or form. And then to have a media outlet, a publication, a podcast, a video outlet or whatever, representing their politics on a different level through a different medium. Just want to throw that out there before we continue. Yeah. And thank you for that. Yeah. Be, and, you know, it's like for those that do create your own like YouTube channel or podcasts. And, you know, if your goal is not to be like, you know, a career YouTuber or like a career media creator, you know, try it like there are organizations out there that you should connect with. You know, there's room for people to connect with uh, people who are doing good work out there. and there's room for you as well. Um, and that's, that's going to be something that, you know, you have to struggle internally because we do live in the society and, you know, I'll get into a little, let me get into like a brief theoretical point about that. Today, we're taught that the dominant thing uh, that we learn amongst Maoists uh, is that the problem, the fundamental contradiction in building for revolution today is the fact that people don't know about Maoism. True, to an extent, but what good does knowing about an ideology if you don't have an organization to actually put that ideology into practice. So I say the fundamental issue today in the United States is that we don't have organizations that can reach a mass, like, you know, can reach a nationwide, like has a capability of reaching all aspects of the struggle, all aspects of the masses and lead those uh, struggles to the conclusion of sparking rebellions. And there are organizations that are attempting to do that. And uh, education is important, but education is best done within an organization itself, not through just learning about it on YouTube. And it's not the worst thing in the world. It's great when people get involved because they learned about something from politics and command or any other, you know, YouTube channel, but it can't fundamentally be the answer. Great. Yeah. Thanks for, for adding that point. Um, let's move on to another positive from this uh, history. Yeah. Um, I think another positive is that, the truth is, is that at the time when the Red Guards were formed and the time when Maoism was coming back into the, the popular left zeitgeist or uh, whatever you want to call it, 
there was a need to struggle against anti-revisionist or like for anti-revisionist politics and like uh this idea of like fighting for good politics and keeping politics in command and having these deep theoretical discussions and putting forward the need to actually make revolution and not having illusions that the state is some benign entity that's going to just simply allow us uh, to gain state power is important because because we look at the pseudo like the Trotskyist like organizations like the ISO and controversial opinion coming in workers world and uh, PSL. These groups um, fundamentally follow the transitional demand as written by Trotsky of getting involved in every single mass struggle, you know, as it exists, but not seeking to elevate it to any higher level. So the wait, can you talk about that? I think because I've struggled in kind of understanding this sometimes, too. And it sounds like you have a really good point here is like they're not actually organizing the people. Maybe they can mobilize people on different issues. Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, like, landlordism is bad or the war is bad, but they're not actually organizing people in those specific struggles and the way that you just said that could you expand a little bit i think that is so incredibly important yeah absolutely um so today the way that the trotskyists and like the way that these revisionists join is just like they just parachute into like movements they just jump into movements as they exist but there's no like you know their whole thing is like you will see any article about like any massive police brutality anti-police brutality protest like picket signs with uh, with psl logos any like uh certain anti-war demonstrations you see the answer coalition so what they're not doing is you have like going into the community going into the the veteran like you know when it comes to like the anti-war stuff like organizing veterans as they exist or students on their campuses or workers at the work site like trying to organize struggles where they don't exist and trying to bring in people who are a part of the communities and sections of the masses that need to be a part of this they don't do that they only only care about people who already have progressive ideas, progressive ideas in their eyes, who are already ready to protest and who are going to show up. And what they're and the PSL is the best at doing this is that they will show up to whatever is necessary and they will pass out signs, literature, and they'll try to co-opt the protest. And that's not organizing. That's showing up and that's kind of mobilizing. And the Trotskyists have this firm, um, they have this one idea that we won't talk too much about right now, but it's called entryism. Is that, you know, sometimes it's good to just hide your politics, you know, join a trade union, join a union um, and get a job there. And then slowly but surely, like get like a, a position as president. They typically don't because they're super weird and aren't able to actually unite the people as they exist. And eventually the job is like once we become presidents of this local union, then boom, we can say, now I am a Trotskyist. I'm a part of the League of the Fourth International, and we're going to bring Trotskyism after hiding it for decades and decades. And we don't, entryism doesn't work. It doesn't mean 
that we have to like go around with like waving our mouth flags every second of the uh, like every second of the day. But there's times where we have to be upfront about our politics. We have to disdain hiding our views, but we have to organize a practical movement of the working people as it exists. And they don't and develop the struggle where it doesn't exist, where we know it can, but where people are scared, apathetic or not ready to struggle. And they don't attempt to do that. So and and let, let me ask you this, this you mentioned this, but can you talk just a little bit more about it? this is fundamentally a Trotskyist type of organization and then. After that, tie it back to what you were originally saying about the Red Guards, that something about this being a, a positive aspect. Yeah. And, you know, we could also do another episode on this, but there's a there's a fundamental error that people make when analyzing the political lines of groups like the Workers World Party or the Party for Socialism and Liberation specifically is that they're Trotskyists. They're fundamentally Trotskyist because their politics have nothing in common with Marxism-Leninism. Marxism-Leninism today is Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. And I don't say that just to like put out platitudes, but go back and read this article by this guy named Sam Marcy, who split from the Socialist Workers Party in 1959. It's an article called Global Class War. And the ideas that are espoused in that is that today, every war that happens, that there's a fundamentally proletarian camp and there's a fundamentally bourgeois camp and the u.s is fundamentally the leader of the bourgeois camp which you know i would agree with that like the u.s is the number one enemy of the world's people but also so is russia and so is china because neither of these two are socialist countries and they would put this idea that like the psl says that because you know, Russia has like a, a good state authoritarian sort of government. I don't like to say authoritarian, but they have a strong state that's that's closer to socialism. China, they have a communist party ruling. So therefore, you know, they are also the to get a little bit deeper into this. And I hate, I don't I don't want to talk about this too much because I know this is going to be something we talk about later, but um, not us, but, you know, in general. Um, that they believe that the, the base in China is still socialist, that fundamentally the relations of production and because the revolution that happened in 1949 was a socialist revolution, therefore there's still socialism with Chinese characteristics or with market characteristics, whatever they say, in China. And therefore, the wars that they get involved in or support are progressive. And we should side with them defeating the US because that's going to ultimately benefit making revolution in the United States. You're describing yeah. Marcyism, which comes from Sam Marcy, which I do want to do an entire episode on this train of thought. But Marxism is just Trotskyism or it's a form of Trotskyism? What's Marxism in relation to Trotskyism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Marxism, one, you know, Sam Marcy was a member of 
the Socialist Workers Party. Him and like a group of like nine or 10 other people were kicked out in Buffalo in like 1959 or like left. I don't know the exact story, but they actively fight against quote unquote Stalinism. They say that uh, that they're a Leninist Trotskyist model. Go back and look at some of the old Workers World newspapers and it'll have Marx, Lenin, then Trotsky. You know, these this is this is their fundamental politics is that because they follow this guy named Tony Cliff. And I know this is getting really deep into the weeds, but Tony Cliff and uh, Max Chapman. And there's a few other early Trotskyists who would say that China and the Soviet Union and Trotsky himself are deformed worker states, you know, instead of the Maoist position that. Ultimately, the Soviet Union up until 56, when the coup by Khrushchev happened, was a socialist country, but it had many flaws. You know, we admit that it had a lot of flaws. It was the first socialist country in the whole world. But what they would argue is that it's a deform, that the problem is bureaucracy. The problem is that it is a worker state. And because socialist revolution has happened, but the workers don't have as much power that they should and that eventually they'll be able to get more power um, if they keep struggling and we just trust the government, the trust, this socialist government. And that's the problem in China today. And so this is a fundamentally Trotskyist idea. And these are the ideas that are upheld by Marcy. And Marcy was the founder of the Workers World. And then PSL split from Workers World in 2004. But their politics really didn't change very much. Okay, um, I'm going to officially invite you to a future episode to really dive deep into this history and talk about the politics of it all. Um, And I'm sure listeners would love to have an episode like that. But with that in mind, let's go back to what you were saying in relation to all of uh, the things that we've been talking about the past few minutes. I'll just make it very clear, very, very concise that ultimately there's a lot of bad politics in the United States. There's a lot of revisionist uh, people and organizations on the left and the Red Guards and other Maoist organizations that were criticizing that was a positive trend because we needed anti-revisionist politics because it is so important that the correct politics guide every aspect of our organizing. Yeah, exactly. I, that's that's a great point. How they how they went about that, of course, is questionable and, and probably overall negative. But the initiation of something like that is something that we dearly, dearly need. Do you have another positive aspect that you want to talk about from the Red Guards experience? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the only other one that I'll say is that I think there is an importance in uh, like opening the door for like polemics and like struggling against like incorrect ideas and like having open debate. We do live at a time where sadly, like, you know, people in the U.S. don't like to be criticized. I don't know. I mean, I'm just speaking from the American context. Uh People don't like to be criticized and people don't like to have open debate. They did it absolutely wrong. The way that they did it was just like you don't just denounce everybody that disagrees with you as revisionists. But I think the attempt to open up conversation on a political on these like political topics um, and like key questions facing the revolutionary movement 
is a good thing. Generally, you know, um, it has to be held. Uh, it has to be done in a comradely way, which they never, ever did. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think that's the uh, only other one that I probably feel comfortable mentioning. That is a really good point in this C and if you will, universe of liberalism where people are really scared to have a disagreement. We see it in our everyday lives and the basic culture of U.S. society, but that spreads into these leftist spaces and even so-called communist spaces where it's really hard to like bring up and be, I don't know, sometimes I feel like uh, leftist spaces are more infiltrated from like I shouldn't say infiltrated as a word, but influenced and impacted by petty bourgeois notions, especially this liberalism where uh, no one wants to disagree with anyone. And if you do, you may look bad and you may you're afraid of hurting the other person's feelings or whatever. But then there's a sense where I feel like in a proletarian neighborhood or space where. Uh, or in the hood, you know, people from the lower income, lower classes, they're not afraid to say, you know, say what they think you are doing in that moment, whether it's right or wrong, they'll say it. But for some reason, we read a few revolutionary texts and join some leftist organization, like, we just have to like, walk step you know uh what's it saying step on our toes walk on our toes everywhere on eggshells everywhere right we're too scared to toe around yeah we're too afraid to speak our minds even if we say it respectively so um i think that's such an incredibly important uh point to make because it's easy for us to talk about it yeah let's just change the way we talk and be open and honest with each other but then in real life day-to-day practice when we're actually organizing with people and you have someone that's new or you have someone you're meeting with that you haven't talked with in a long time or i don't know all these different types of situations it's actually much more difficult in practice absolutely you know and there's the truth is is that they used to say this one thing like uh, they meaning the leadership of the red guards is that you have to toughen your scalp that's uh, something taken from Mao, uh, and just like listen to the words and not worry about how things are said but the truth is is that we can apply it to our situation today Tone does matter to an extent, you know, like if someone is like so worried about tone above all, then they're probably not going to listen to the criticism anyways. But we don't need to be assholes to each other. We don't have to be assholes. But if we can't handle simple disagreements, we're we're in a hell of a lot of trouble. And there's good ways to approach it in like a comradely way. Like, you know, I could be like, Jay. I don't agree with what you said um, and just point out the political line and not go after, oh, you always do this. You're so wrong. You know, you always are like taking the bourgeois line on this, that and the other. I've got one response, one word in response. Canceled. Right. (laughs) Yeah, you criticize me. (laughs) Exactly. And we and this is a problem. One of the things that, you know, you talked about in your other podcast with the comrades uh, from the Revolutionary Marxist Student Group, you know, cancel culture is a problem, you know, on campuses. And, you know, yeah, sure. Right wing people are the main ones that bring it up, but it really 
is a problem that we have to deal with today and we can't just skirt around it you know we're not going to cancel comrades for having just like a wrong opinion on something you know like if they're in the minority actually mao says this all the time that we have to dare to be someone who can go against the tide and it's hard it's really difficult i hate conflict sometimes with my friends and comrades and people but it's so necessary if we're going to actually grow Excellent point. Let's move on. Do you have some negative aspects of, I mean, we've, you know, this is a pros and cons type of section. So um, can we kind of like sum up some of the negative aspects that you've uh, seen, witnessed, and uh, can describe with this history of the RGCR? Yeah, let's, um, I'm going to go a little bit more rapid fire. And the first one, we'll go into the last point that we talk about is, the ideology and the, the general politics of the organization were not Maoist, you know, and that was the fundamental problem and biggest negative today. You know, there's Gonzaloism and like their dogmatic copy and paste mentality with uh, Gonzaloism is not Maoism. Maoism is an ideology. It's a scientific ideology that has been tested throughout the 200 years of the international communist movement, starting with the the revolutions in 1848 and the great proletarian cultural revolution that was defeated in 76. So there's lessons that have to be summed up from the history that today, actually many, most Maoists today in the U S you know, we're still learning so much of the lessons and it's continuing on with the revolutions that are happening in India and per- the Philippines. <laughs> and that actually gets to my second point is that there is like a subjectivist uh, view and like total like religious worship of the PCP. You know, the PCP today, there's no verifiable evidence that there is a people's war going on in Peru. Do we wish that there was? Yes, absolutely. But our wishes can be conformed to reality. Um, You know, they have reality determines our thinking and they struggled so much with getting over the fact that, and there's a lot of people in the ICL and in this quote unquote new, you know, communist league that, are holding these incorrect political views that say that today we need to go back and just really develop and help develop the struggle in the revolutions that are happening in the Philippines, in Peru, in India, in Turkey. So they're just listing off things to be more than it actually is. Um, And that's like a part of the subjectivist thinking that is so bad and so damaging to the revolutionary project. And so then three, there was a sycophancy and lackeyism that exists, you know, and what does that mean? All that really means is that the people who got moved up in leadership within the organizational forms of the CR were the people who really just agreed and were just yes men and women for 
the leadership. If you agreed with everything that came out of Tribune and struggle session, then you were unwilling to criticize it. Then you'll probably get moved up slowly, but surely we can't do that. You know, we can't develop this lackey culture that exists today. You know, we have to be able to hold um, inside of our organization um, people who disagree people who hold the majority and the minority opinions. And, you know, going back to the constitution of the Communist Party of China, which is a great document that I think revolutionaries really should read more and more today. They say that you should be able to, there should be absolutely no reason for any retaliation for having any sort of wrong, like, you know, minority opinion. If you have a wrong opinion, you should be willing to struggle for it and in the organizational form it's like you can supersede your direct leaders and go to the central committee of you know the organization in the time the chinese uh, the communist party of china because everyone should be allowed to hold minority opinions and you should dare to struggle for these uh, opinions that aren't in the majority but also you shouldn't be berated about it. You know, they say that you should have a ease of mind, like that you should have some ease of mind that, you know, that if you hold an opinion, that's not in line with the vast majority of people that it's okay. You know, that you're not going to be shunned and kicked out of the organization that ultimately you're, you're just somebody, uh, you have an opinion that could be proven throughout struggle and throughout time to be correct. And you should be allowed to stand firm in your opinion without being berated every single day. And that was the problem that happened with the Red Guards all the time is that, you know, people were supposed to have their incorrect ideas beaten out of them. And, and this goes into another negative point. Number four is that if someone has an ideological deficiency you resolve that deficiency by doing ideological training, not administrative like punishments, right? You know, just if someone holds, if someone doesn't understand like philosophical materialism is the way that Lenin puts it in three component sources and parts of Marxism or just dialectical materialism, you're not going to get through to someone by making them walk up and down a hill carrying heavy stuff on their back, which was something that happened to me, or you're not going to have to deal. Uh, you're not going to get someone to be trained as a better Marxist and like grasping at various um, ideas and like being able to understand the all sidedness of any specific thing by another thing that's happened to me was standing up at attention, by the way, uh, standing at attention. I'm not, I've never been in the military. I didn't even know what that was. I was taught what that meant, uh, in this process. Um, and you know, holding that position for three hours and being told everything that I need to, and really get to the root of why I'm not a good Maoist today. That's such an administration. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Wait, were there military veterans in this organization? I think one. I remember one. And I only ask because of maybe the influence of this is what we did in the military, and then we're going to do it in this organization. 
Mm-mm. I remember there could have been uh, like in other branches, but in my like, you know, experience in Charlotte and like Pittsburgh and like with some uh, experience and uh, knowledge of, you know, the like the inner workings, there was one person who was a part of the military and this goes to show you, you know, and this is something that's so common is that the people who take on this over militarized, you know, like bravado are not people who've ever actually served in the military. They're usually disgruntled, petty bourgeois or just like bourgeois intellectuals, typically. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Wow. This is, um, yeah, uh, great points on the negative aspects. Thanks for summing those up and, uh, but thoroughly describing them. Um, you know, let me just add because it's, it's been public now that there's been like former Red Guard CR members who've come on various social media platforms and individually has talked about their experience. But the common trend that I have seen is that a lot of them have been harmed emotionally, intellectually, and it sounds like a little bit physically being like standing at attention for three hours, so on and so forth, and then being yelled at or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some reports of, I don't know, it was something like flying to another city and then getting kind of, I don't want to say jumped, but physically attacked in certain ways. And But, you know, whether, I don't know. I'm just saying that this has been like stated online from people who claim to be in the organization or formerly in the organization, but it's just a common thing where it has been like, yeah, very abusive on multiple fronts within its own members. And honestly, that's, that's really sad to see. Cause it sounds like there was a lot of young people that were full of this militant energy that was excited to build something that did have some and maybe a lot of positive aspects but unfortunately through its leadership through its ideology took it down a backwards path basically um so that was that's really sad to to see let me start to let's sum up this whole entire conversation by me asking you a very basic question to make this as clear as possible for people who do listen to this episode and conversation was the red guards and the committee to reconstitute the communist party of the United States of America ever actually Maoist. No, they weren't. And there's a lot of reasons for, but I will go through just make it as clear as possible. Maoism is a higher form and is an ideology that has been developed as a science for the last 200 years. Science, one of the things that's so important to remember about science is to test things out in practice, go back, you know, examine the results and then try new things out. And everything has to be based on the material reality as it exists today. We can't imagine that today some sort of, you know, adventurous fantasies about people's war happening in the United States could ever happen. Or like in uh, European countries. Why? Because what was so different about China when the People's War happened there? They 
were in the midst of this all encompassing like civil war, right? There wasn't this organized formal army that was able to, you know, just show up in Yan'an and just destroy one. A lot of the like, you know, the nationalist and uh, like the warlords didn't actually know where the communists were hiding, you know, so that's a different thing today. The military in the United States absolutely has the logistical capacity, the communications, the the forms, the militarization, the weaponry to be at anywhere in any part of this country within four to five hours. So where are you going to form this like people's army? You know, one, if you've ever talked about like people's war through your phone through your computer. Yeah. There's encrypted messaging and stuff like that, but there's networks that they're developed with where our phones are in connection to somebody else. Most likely they can start to piece together. Oh, this is the small group of people that are talking about that as well as how do you, one of the fundamental laws of people's war is that you ultimately get your weaponry and like all the weapons from the enemy. How do you do that in the U.S.? What are you going to do? You're going to start off with no you're going to fire slingshots and like bow and arrows at military and poli- like police units that are more militarized than probably any other country in the world. I, maybe Israel. I don't know. I don't know the exacts of all of that. So how are you going to do that? It's not these are all fantasies that people have. I heard I remember somebody would talk a little bit about how they would use the state parks and the state parks were a battleground for, um, you know, like it's going to be a battleground between the fascists and the, and the Maoists because, you know, control over the state parks, that's where you're going to be able to hide. We live in 2023, you know, I, I'm not, I'm far from an expert on anything related to military tactics and strategy. And like, even just like the weaponry that they have, but I have a feeling that they could find us in a state park pretty easily. Right. You know, like maybe you can mention this, uh, Jay, but the point is, is that one, we're not in the strategic offensive of the world proletarian revolution. The universality of people's war is not what we should get from the lessons all over the world is that, no, we should get from the fact that Mao was putting forward this idea of military theory and strategy that has absolutely universal applicability in some ways. You know, one of them being like, if the enemy is chasing us, we run. If they're running away from us, we chase them. You know, these are these are like not these are the things that people don't like actually read into. And so we can't be so dogmatic and copy and paste from very different situations, because the other thing that's absolutely true about the United States is that we have a low level of class struggle and mass struggle that exists today Um, in India. Very different situation. The Philippines, very different situation. There are absolutely lessons that we're going to bring and learn in the process of making revolution, but we can't copy and paste everything because it's not going to work here today. And, you know, for those people that are Maoist today and people that are like, you know, fond of the ideology and are learning about it, that's absolutely amazing. And I I commend anyone that is like fighting through the muck 
of revisionist ideas that exist in the United States and all over the world today. But you have to get serious about analyzing the objective situation as it exists, not what we want it to be. And in order to do that, you have to take on Maoism as a science and you have to be in essence a maoist and that means that we have to analyze our subjective capabilities meaning like what how many forces do we have you know right now the best thing that we can do is go amongst the masses integrate with the masses to the closest extent that we can build these links and develop uh struggles where they don't exist and organize the struggles that do exist and try to spark rebellion amongst those already existing struggles because we're not in any way shape form like ready to take on the state as it does but as it exists today but there's going to be a time when the ruling class cannot rule in the way that it does. There's going to be a time where the masses cannot live in the way that they have for the last hundreds and hundreds of years and much more before that. And there's going to be a revolutionary crisis that hits the United States and all over the world. And if we're daydreaming about fantasies of waging a struggle that isn't ready to be waged, we're missing out on the opportunity to organize the masses in their already existing struggles so that when that crisis emerges, we'll be ready to provide leadership and take advantage of the ruling classes bumbling idiocy that we've already seen and the masses absolute discontentment. We failed in 2020 are we going to allow ourselves to fail in the future? And this is why we need Maoism more so than ever. And we have to shed ourselves of the revisionist, principally Maoist ideas and fantasies that are being propagated so much, honestly, by people online and some people in person and really get to the root uh, and find out what are the lessons of the international communist movement? What are the ways that we can organize ourselves on a firmly Maoist basis? And how can we be Maoist in essence, not in form? Wow, beautifully put. That was great. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you for this discussion. Before I kind of like close out, is there any last words that you want to add? I feel like that was perfect, but uh still want to open it up. I just want to leave the audience with this thought. The road ahead of us is torturous. We all know this, but the future remains bright if we apply MLM as a science. And this is very important to have unwavering faith in the masses to finally overthrow this parasitic capitalist system once and for all. The Romans did, so did the Ottomans, Humming and the Ching, Mayans and the Shanti Kings, at least we're in good company, ancient Gauls all down to the Gaul, all empires fall down to the last
couple decades count him down The states won't be around, can't be found The strongest song will fall with a bang Lady of Liberty with a fangs Does that guy just scared off there? Pretends to fear what's there, post there Balkanized, so can I for a slice of the pie American pie, all rise Open mouth wide, take a bite Some fight for your rights, to fight for your life Can't grow brain cause the soil fucked up Who's what's in the cut to bust us? If you recall, before they fall It's all one hedonistic brawl Make sure to take sips from the chalice Little girls traffic, islands and palace Concentration can filled to the brim Deport the workers, capital in Out with the uterus, six scientific experiments Modern day heroes and everyone's terrorists Up in Guantanamo Bay But they hold the keys, all to MK All empires fall What do you miss? Golden M's? Cans of petroleum coke from Ken's? Maybe it's asphalt friends. Maybe it's Benz. Benz owes the Benz to make a dance. Maybe it's the front yard Porsche fence. A torture slit that meant no offense. A Porsche that can't go for a spin. Cause overproduction hauls them in. Talking gents, let the gin talk for the men. They lift the gas just to blow off steam. Loan sharks don't pause for the fin. To sink in, let that sink in. Export the masses, eggs in a million baskets Filled by buttermilk berries Paris, a berries, but lunch that damage Squeeze like a kid learning on a half sandwich A marriage, a bank, and the wrench Now the ice caps melt and the money's all drenched All empires fall All empires fall The more history of class struggle What world shall we A shadow is cast. How long will we allow to let legacies last? The working class, the gas with the last flash. Stop the dream, wait for Constantine. No one I got pound at the rice. Either Yoshi baked the cake. Tokugawa said it tastes great. Ah, unity is made. Ah, till it all separates. Ah, till it all separates. Ah, till it all separates. In the middle of a boat with a rope on my neck Paddle, paddle, get the galley up and go I was sold to some old Men always by the coast for some gold Put the olives in the bowl Woke up in the middle of a road Far gone with the days that saw gone media controls Babylon controls King Cyrus folds Ah oh, shit, there Jesus go Woke up in the middle of a coliseum Both loud low said no It's fit they don't go Used to own no land to lose the clothes Seen a lot of visit gods come and go Thanks to Franks but then end in Rome Thanks to Clovis, I have a home Woke up in the middle of a land I can't leave Four days under Lord's miles on three Rotate the crop, two plots, switch it up Three plots, not enough, who's so fell in love? King's hat flew off, off we go Earth that slow, now we burn it cold Declaration, based on the Iroquois nation Displacement, foul debasement, ancient Terror in the land, stand by Roman senators brand A Corinthian band, built by the Gold Coast Three modes in one, slavery capital Lords of the sun, lord of the flies The blood they yarn, three to the two To don't become one, all empires fall All empires fall